in the Azusa Street Revival from 1906 through 1909, almost around the clock, nearly every day, we see perhaps the most explosive, fastest-growing, and farthest-reaching movement of the Holy Spirit upon humanity since the Book of Acts. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you're listening to The Charge. I'm thoroughly indebted to the excellent research and writing of scholar Cecil Roback Jr., who penned the Azusa Street Mission and Revival, The Birth of the Global Pentecostal Movement, published by Thomas Nelson. You can check it out by following the link below. Let's go back almost 100 years before Azusa Street. The Methodist movement grew very strongly as the Presbyterian movement was declining in the early part of the 1800s. But as the Methodists became more established, some within the movement saw it as compromise and worldliness. Therefore, many new denominations arose from the Methodists as the holiness movement grew. Their core teaching on salvation had much in common with the rest of Protestantism, that sanctification was understood as a one-time event which enables the believer to live a holy life. One significant difference between the Pentecostals that would come out of Azusa and the holiness movement was that the Pentecostals believed that baptism of the Holy Spirit needed to be accompanied by speaking in tongues, while holiness people were averse to tongues altogether. Yet, for the Pentecostals, this baptism was all about empowerment for ministry. William Joseph Seymour, the African-American pastor of the Azusa Street Mission, was the key figure of the revival. In the holiness tradition, it was common to refer to congregations as missions. Born in 1870, he was the son of former slaves and was reared in a Catholic home just a few miles from the Gulf Coast in southern Louisiana. Between 1895 and 1905, William Seymour traveled to Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Houston, where he became involved in the Wesleyanist holiness movement. It was in 1905 in Houston, Texas, where Seymour came into contact with Charles F. Parham, the founder of the Apostolic Faith Movement. January 1906, William J. Seymour enrolled in Parham's short-term Bible school, where he studied for about six weeks. While Seymour was not allowed to take a seat inside the classroom because of segregation laws, Parham made space available for him in the hallway. It was here that Parham taught his theory about baptism in the Holy Spirit, accompanied by the evidence of tongues. Shortly after he began his studies under Parham, William Seymour was invited to Los Angeles to serve as the pastor of a small mission. The pastor of that congregation was looking for a replacement so that she could go to do mission work in Africa. She had heard great things about Pastor Seymour, though they had never met. There was already much talk of and prayer for revival when William Seymour arrived in L.A. in February. Since 1904, many Christians in L.A. had been hearing of a great revival in Wales, and Pastor Joseph Smale was even there to experience it. Smale's congregation would soon be in the middle of the Azusa Street revival. Though already offered the pastorate, once Seymour started preaching at his new church, within days he found himself literally locked out because of his views on speaking in tongues. The Holiness Church Association met with Seymour and informed him that he would not be allowed to preach in any Holiness churches, period. With no money to speak of, Seymour needed help. Fortunately, a couple from the congregation invited him to stay at their tiny home. Each evening, they gathered in their parlor for prayer together, and Seymour spoke to them. Before long, they had established a prayer meeting that others visited as well. 
By mid-March, the growth of that prayer meeting forced them to move to the Asbury's home on North Bonnie Bray Street. On April 6, they added fasting to the preaching and prayer, expecting to experience what happened in Acts 2. On April 9, 1906, this Bible study was visited by a move of the Holy Spirit. One man believed that he was ready to receive this baptism in the Spirit. When Seymour laid his hands on him, the man fell to the floor and spoke in tongues. An hour later, more people came and Seymour told them what had just happened. No sooner had he completed the story when someone in the group began to speak in tongues. The whole company was immediately swept to its knees as by some mighty power, quote unquote. They began to pray and before the evening was over, several others had spoken in tongues as well. Over the next three days, the Asbury home became the focus of attention within the various networks of Los Angeles holiness people. By just the next day, the home was filled with genuine seekers and curious onlookers alike. People gathered outside, straining to hear through open windows those who are now receiving their baptism in the Spirit and speaking in tongues. The Asburys turned their front porch into a platform from which those who chose to do so could preach or lead an ever-growing crowd in singing or testifying. After the weight of the excited worshipers on the front porch caused it to collapse, they looked to relocate. On Thursday, April 12th, after a long evening spent in prayer, William Seymour finally received his baptism in the Spirit, falling on the floor as though dead and then speaking in tongues. That same day, they located a building at 312 Azusa Street. Seymour and his friends investigated, negotiated a short-term lease, and cleaned it up. It was a very substandard building with a sawdust-covered dirt floor. It also became known officially as the Apostolic Faith Mission, the same as Parms Ministry in Texas. But popularly, it was known as the Azusa Street Mission. By April 18th, an unflattering story of the Azusa Street Mission made its public debut on the pages of the Los Angeles Daily Times. Within days of its beginning, meetings at the mission exploded as crowds swarmed the place, filling the building and spilling outside. Estimates from the period suggest that the crowds grew to as many as 1,500 people on any given Sunday, through multiple services during 1906. From time to time, literally hundreds of hymn-singing believers connected to the Azusa Mission made trips by train and streetcars to the beach for all-day baptismal services. It was common to find as many as 150 to 250 new converts being baptized at each of these events. As in any revival, prayer was foundational. Seymour dedicated himself to pray for hours each day prior to the coming of the revival, and he did his best to maintain this discipline throughout all his leadership responsibilities. Prayer, especially spontaneous and boisterous prayer, seemed to bathe all the events of the revival. At the Azusa Street Mission, people spoke in tongues, prophesied, preached divine healing, performed exorcisms, went into trances, saw visions, and engaged in other phenomena such as jumping, rolling, laughing, shouting, hand clapping, foot stomping, ecstatic seizures, falling under the power of the Holy Spirit, and yes, barking and other animal noises. Yet, there were times when there were only whispers, or a holy hush fell and people were left speechless. Often, no subjects or sermons or special speakers were announced ahead of time. No one knew what might be coming, what God would do. 
always spontaneous and ordered of the Spirit, yet every service also included public prayers, singing, testimonies, preaching or teaching from the Bible, and time spent around the altar. Individuals, most often African-American women, spontaneously led out in song, drawing from the repertoire of hymns and songs they had learned that was common to other holiness churches. Many people often sang in different tongues at the same time in a spontaneous and glorious counterpoint. There is a strong presence of love and affection amongst the brothers and sisters. Here is one of the more favorable stories that wound up in the paper. Quote, In the rear part of the room, men were clasped in each other's arms. In fond embrace, Brother Osborne and Brother Cummings, colored, remained almost a full minute. It was real hugging, no beating around the bush about it, and nearly every other man was going through a similar process. And meanwhile, among all, there were shouts of joy and laughter and singing one song right after another." End quote. People came into the mission and had their lives radically transformed in one evening. One young woman came to the meeting unsaved, fell under deep conviction during the sermon, and within five minutes of the time she went to the altar, she was saved. Before the evening was over, she was sanctified and baptized with the Holy Ghost and allegedly had the gift of Chinese and was singing in Chinese in the Spirit. There was also a move of the Spirit where Azusa workers were at the train station praying and worshiping and many in the crowd were slain in the Spirit. Sanctification was supposed to be a datable moment of purification. Here's the newspaper story of one woman praying for her sanctification. Quote, One woman with a voice like a megaphone continued howling, Oh Lord, let me get it. Oh Lord, let me have it. For about 15 minutes, she kept this up. Then she got it, and she got it good and plenty, whatever it was. She began rocking and writhing, and in five minutes she was on the floor, apparently in the greatest pain. Her eyes rolled wildly, and if her arms and legs hadn't been fastened on, they would have been scattered to the four winds. She jumped to her feet, and some of the unregenerate who had looked on with open-mouthed wonder fled from the building in terror, but she didn't intend to do anyone any damage. She had received sanctification and was simply expressing her joy in her own peculiar way. All the brethren and the sisters gathered around her and amened and hallelujahed until they were hoarse, evidently as happy as she was." End quote. One of the strangest phenomena seen by many, though not observed by others, were the ongoing flames day after day rising from the top of the mission. The mission was frequently criticized for many things, being a hotbed of false teaching, spiritualism, free loveism, hypnotism, demon possession, and the like. But some spiritualists were attracted to the meetings, and given Seymour's willingness to let anyone speak, they openly taught. However, quote, God confounded them. It soon became too hot for them, and they ran away, end quote. Those who stayed, however, ended up undergoing exorcism, renouncing spiritualism, and aligning with the revival. As a result of so much strange behavior coming out of Azusa Street, the mission's members were subjected to regular and frequent ridicule, both public and private. Viewed as fanatics, many of its members were arrested, fined, and jailed on grounds that they were insane. The public debated whether the mission should even be allowed to exist. Sometimes Azusa members violated the public peace. Many times the neighbors called the police to protest loud worshipers going late into the night. 
In one incident in Chinatown, the residents had put up with loud outdoor nightly meetings for two weeks. Finally, a group of Chinese gathered some rotten eggs and pelted the Azusa worshippers. In another incident, a gang armed themselves with squirt guns filled with diluted sulfuric acid. They attacked an Azusa group, burning off some of their clothes and causing painful burns. Here are some sample headlines from local newspapers during the first two years of the revival. Holy kickers carry on mad orgies. At all-night meetings in Azusa Street Church, Negroes and whites give themselves over to strange outbursts of zeal. Women and men embrace. Whites and blacks mix in a religious frenzy. Disgusting scenes at Azusa Street Church. Crazed girls in arms of black men. The mission had a very explicit orientation towards ministering to both the spiritual and physical needs of people, especially the most marginalized the poor, those incarcerated in the city's jail, those without physical sight or needing other physical healing, and the oppressed, whether through addictions or prejudice, were all high on the mission's agenda. Seymour claimed that God is able to heal, and it was his desire to lay hands upon the sick and pray the prayer of faith. From the outset, the leadership group that surrounded Seymour was racially mixed and included women and men. For several years, under Pastor Seymour's unique ministry, the mission attracted and held the ongoing participation of African Americans, Latinos, Armenians, Russians, Germans, Italians, Chinese, Japanese, Native Americans, and all social classes, highly educated and illiterate, rich and poor. Thus, the mission resulted in a movement in keeping with God's promise to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Yet, not all visitors were so eager to see all races mingling together. Cashwell, a holiness pastor from North Carolina, came to the mission but could not countenance the idea of a black man laying hands on him and praying for him. Back in his hotel room, he struggled with his racial prejudice. He later wrote that he had to undergo a crucifixion in which he had to die to many things. In the end, he declared that God had given him the victory over his racism. Pastor Seymour was a strong student of Scripture. He was not a highly educated man, and he certainly did not pretend to be. He had a very solid reputation with many people as a man of great character and humility. This is what was said about him. Quote, his strength is in his conscious weakness and loneliness before God, and so long as he maintains this attitude, the power of God will no doubt continue to flow through him. End quote. And from another, quote, He is the meekest man I ever met. He seems to maintain a helpless dependence on God and is as simple-hearted as a little child, and at the same time is so filled with God that you feel the love and power every time you get near him. End quote. Here is a story that further illustrates Seymour's character. Evangelist Glenn Cook had come to the mission to set everyone straight. When it was his turn to speak, he began by telling the people that they were all wrong. The longer Cook railed against Seymour and his people that evening, the more he became convicted in his own heart that Seymour was right. Before he was through speaking, he was on his knees asking for forgiveness and praying to receive what Seymour was preaching the baptism in the Spirit. Speaking for critics who had experienced something similar, Cook later recalled that Pastor Seymour would simply, quote, 
sit behind that pulpit and smile at us until we were all condemned by our own activities. End quote. But Seymour did maintain some level of order in the services. Some eyewitnesses remembered Seymour placing a gentle hand on someone's shoulder with the words, Brother, that is the flesh. And sometimes it took just a look. Though he strongly promoted tongues, he decided that glossolalia could be accepted as the biblical evidence of a person's baptism in the Spirit only if it were also accompanied by divinely given love. Within weeks of the beginning of the Azusa Street Mission, seasoned Christian workers began to arrive from all over the country. For a short time, Pastor Seymour surrounded himself with a very capable interracial staff of women and men. Together they provided the planning and forethought required both by a new congregation and by the revival which was spreading around the world. They trained up new leaders, planted churches, preached, evangelized, wrote, published, and a myriad of other duties. Jenny Evans Moore was one of the first to speak and sing in tongues at North Bonnie Bray Street and was also given the gift of playing the piano. She was a member of Seymour's ministry team from the beginning and became his wife in 1908. The Azusa Mission never asked for money in their periodical, nor took offerings in their services, but left a box for donations. Money poured in from everywhere. By late summer 1906, less than six months after it was founded, members and sympathizers had established several related congregations in Los Angeles and surrounding communities. They distributed tracts, set up tents, or rented storefronts, plotting out where they would be most effective as they established other permanent places for Pentecostal worship. Here are a few testimonies of what people actually experienced in their baptism of the Holy Spirit. William Durham wrote, It was strange and wonderful and yet glorious. I arose perfectly conscious outwardly and inwardly that I was fully baptized in the Holy Ghost. First, I was conscious that a living person had come into me and that he possessed even my physical being insomuch that he could at his will take hold of my vocal cords and speak any language he chose through me. Then I had such power on me and in me as I never had before and I had a depth of love and sweetness in my soul that I had never even dreamed of before. And a holy calm possessed me and a holy joy and peace beyond anything I have ever experienced before." End quote. Lucy Leatherman wrote, I praised and praised God and saw my Savior in the heavens. And as I praised, I came closer and closer and I was so small. By and by, I was swept into the wound in his side and he was not only in me, but I in him. And there I found that rest that passeth all understanding. And he said to me, You are in the bosom of the Father. But I said, Father, I want the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the heavens opened, and I was overshadowed. And such power came upon me and went through me. I was passive in his hands, working on my vocal cords. And I realized they were loosing me. I began to praise him in an unknown language. End quote. Brother Burke wrote, I asked the Lord to put the Holy Ghost on me and it came like the outpouring of water on the crown of my head and it went through my entire body to the very tips of my toes and fingers and my heart seemed to expand ten times larger and something rushed through me like I was under a faucet. It was the Holy Ghost and the next thing I knew something began to get hold of my jawbones and tongue. I said, Lord, whether I ever speak in tongues or not, I want the baptism with the Holy Ghost as they had it on the day of Pentecost. 
I went home and it seemed a music band of a thousand instruments was set up within me. End quote. Physical healing was a big part of the Azusa Street Revival. When the mailing of the periodical, the apostolic faith, had been prepared, the workers would lay on their hands and pray over them before sending them out. As a result, it was claimed that many were healed when they received the paper, so strong was the faith. We also have the testimony of a woman who was deaf and had her hearing fully restored, as well as a testimony of a man who had tuberculosis, yet his doctor later proclaimed his lungs totally healed. There are stories of limbs growing out a few inches, but more amazing is the testimony of a man whose arm was severed at the shoulder. Seymour prayed for him, and to the astonishment of those around, the whole arm grew out, all the way to the fingernails. We have the testimony regarding this miracle story, but certainly no verification. Many new Pentecostal churches started right in the neighborhood as the revival progressed. But Seymour was not competitive, and he saw them as allies, cooperated in many ways. However, the mission's evangelistic success so deeply affected some congregations that preachers became defensive. Some used their pulpits to attack the mission. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Church Federation, which represented many of the city's historic Protestant churches, counseled together to develop a plan that would counter the impact of the Azusa Street mission on the city. They held meetings they hoped would compete favorably with those offered at the Azusa Street Mission. As the Pentecostal movement spread throughout the country, it had its most profound effect on holiness churches. The holiness movement therefore lost an enormous amount of individual members, congregations, and even denominations to the Pentecostal movement. By September 1906, the mission had sent a score of evangelists up and down the west coast of the United States. By December 1906, they were in major cities from Denver to New York City. And still in December, the mission had commissioned and sent at least 13 missionaries to Africa. On their way, they recruited three more people to join them for ministry. By early 1907, missionaries from Azusa Street had entered Mexico, Canada, Western Europe, the Middle East, West Africa, and several countries in Asia. By 1908, the movement had spread to South Africa, Central and Eastern Europe, and even Northern Russia. Successes like these did not come easily. They often took their toll. Most of the earliest missionaries to Liberia died from disease within weeks of their arrival. From the beginning, speaking in tongues was understood to be related to mission work. In fact, Parham had taught that tongues were actually meant to be real languages to be used for communicating with non-English speakers for foreign mission. Seymour was hesitant to believe this, but there were a few positive claims of successful communication in unknown languages, both at Azusa and in other countries. If a spirit-baptized individual discerned a call to a particular country and felt ready, then once they were affirmed by the leaders, money would be given to them and they would leave town within days, if not hours. The congregation would often accompany the new missionaries to the nearby railroad station, singing and shouting on the way until the train left. For many, they had no training of any sort and they did not know the languages or the customs of the countries to which they were called. These believers took the Bible and their experience at face value and intended to share them with others. However, it didn't take too long before the mission had to reassess how they prepared and sent out missionaries. There were three blatant attempts to take control of the apostolic faith movement. 
First, by Seymour's teacher Parham in 1906, who was outraged by the close mixing of races and the bizarre manifestations in worship. Second, by Crawford, one of Seymour's top staff people in 1908. And last, by William Durham in 1911, whose testimony we just heard. There was also a doctrinal challenge that arose during a group of Pentecostal churches at a 1913 camp meeting. All four of these incidents deeply hurt William J. Seymour. Parham, Crawford, Durham, and those at the camp meeting were all whites when many of the white ministers and the predominantly black Church of God in Christ left that denomination in 1914 and formed the Assemblies of God, Seymour's ability to trust whites was severely compromised. In 1915, Seymour led the Azusa mission in establishing the statute that no white person would be allowed to serve in a leadership role until the racial climate changed. He was grieved over the decision but felt that it was necessary. The ensuing years were difficult for Pastor Seymour, but he kept at his work. His death in 1922 at age 52 went largely unnoticed, not even meriting mention in the local press. His widow Jenny took over as pastor, but the congregation continued to dwindle down to perhaps 20 people. In 1930, a 78-year-old pastor attempted yet another hostile takeover. He proclaimed himself Bishop of the Mission. Within months, his party and Jenny Seymour's party were so much at odds that an argument degenerated into both groups throwing hymnals at each other. Both sides sued each other for control. In 1932, the building was demolished and the group with Jenny Seymour went back to meeting in the Asbury home on Bonnie Bray Street. Jenny Seymour died just four years later at age 54. But let's get back to the good news. There are a colossal number of denominations, ministries, and independent congregations that look to the Azusa Street Revival as a very significant factor in their later origin. This includes some 500 million people around the world today. The importance of Azusa to the worldwide Pentecostal and charismatic movement cannot be overstated. The movement's explosive growth is most significant in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Some of the more noteworthy denominations originating here in the United States are the Apostolic Church, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, the United Pentecostal Churches, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, International Church of the Foursquare Gospel, Victory Outreach, Church of God in Christ, and the Association of Vineyard Churches. And this does not even include the millions of charismatic Christians in Roman Catholic, Episcopalian, Lutheran, and many other denominations. But what really is the significance of Azusa for today? First, Azusa Street rightfully continues to function as a primary icon expressing the power of the worldwide Pentecostal movement. At a time when postmodern thinking attempts to cut the heart out of history and tradition, the recovery of the Azusa Street story can still provide a new impetus towards an encounter with God, spiritual growth, and the expectation that the Holy Spirit will act through signs and wonders. Second, Azusa Street has had a profound effect on other congregations. Pastor Seymour's vision of a shared experience and communal cooperation between various Christian groups needs to be rediscovered. Third, the Azusa Street mission continues to serve as an example for its outreach to the marginalized, the poor women and people of color. In a day that is marred by endless ethnic and racial mistrust and strife, 
it is important to hear how this one congregation and the movement flowing out of it attempted to live out a vision of racial and ethnic inclusion. Fourth, this vision of social harmony had real implications for how believers would respond to violence and war. Just 11 years after the revival began at Azusa, the majority of Pentecostal denominations had explicit anti-war statements in place when the U.S. entered World War I. Many Pentecostals who refused to fight were imprisoned for their faith. Fifth and finally, the Azusa Street Mission was aggressively evangelistic and grew at unparalleled speed. It is important for us to hear once again how a small prayer meeting of some 15 people, including children, grew into an internationally acclaimed congregation of hundreds in just three months, and eventually a worldwide movement of hundreds of millions. Once again, I want to offer a huge amount of thanks to Cecil Robeck Jr. for his outstanding book, The Azusa Street Mission and Revival, The Birth of the Global Pentecostal Movement, published by Thomas Nelson. You can purchase it by following the link below. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. 